This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. I said this 21 years ago on the 21st of December 1991. I said this. I'm going to say it to Nays. I said, I, Howard, take you, Naomi, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forth, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death is to part, according to God's holy law. In the presence of God, I make this vow. So actually, um, I don't know how well I've done. Uh, one of your questions could... No. <laughs> I don't know how well I've done. Uh, I know... Uh, have we been richer and poorer? Yes, we have. Have we had sickness? Not much. Have we had health? Yeah, plenty. Have I loved her and cherished her as much as I could have done? No, there's always more I could have done. But am I still with her with the intention of saying, until death is due part? Absolutely. I was looking up some stats about marriage, and um, this has been a big week about what is marriage, hasn't it? I was going to talk about the whole issue of that, and maybe pick up that next week or the week after when I've had a chance to let the papers come in and the dust settle, but it's been a big week about what is marriage, massive week about what is marriage, and I don't know what you, how you felt about all of that, um, what happened, whether you felt angry, sad, frustrated whether you felt it was a good thing or a bad thing, um, obviously is something we can debate. Obviously, I'm not going to give you my opinions here because we'll get into it. But what I want to talk about is I want to talk really about kind of the essence of marriage. And if actually talk about marriage, you can talk for, you know, and you know me, I can talk. We could do a 10-week series on marriage. So, so if it misses out a lot of the stuff you think, then ask your questions, okay? Ask your questions in two, three weeks, and we'll talk about that. Dating, marriage, whatever, you can do that. But, but I want to just talk about love and marriage this morning, and I want to use the title, Love That Stays. Love That Stays. Because the fact is that we've got the highest, the highest in the EU, one in three. The average length of time a marriage lasts is 11.4 years. So we're well, you know, we're helping the average, and there's people in here who are helping the average. As we, as we talk about love that stays, obviously in the background is love that doesn't stay, love that doesn't remain, love that doesn't last. And um, so, I mean, it's difficult, where, where do you start? But I think perhaps to read a familiar passage, perhaps Simon get us into it, would be helpful. Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed, yes we do, my diet's over, and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. This, says Paul, is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and his wife, and the wife must respect the husband. Lord, we just pray in this week where marriage has been right on the agenda. What is it? Who should it be open to? Lord, we thank you for these kind of eternal passages that ring through about the faithful love of Jesus. That's the model and the picture of of marriage. And I pray as we look at maybe different types of love that would try to form a marriage, I pray that we'd keep our eyes fixed on you. I pray that we wouldn't feel judged or compared. or But Lord, we'd... Uh, let your grace come and change us and transform us if we need to be. I pray that for me, I pray that for us. If you're not married, this is uh, helpful, I hope. If you were, si- if you were mar- married last week, you found a singleness talk helpful. And if you're single this week, I'm sure you'll find the marriage talk helpful. Okay, my first point then is consumer love. Consumer love. Uh, the Spectator magazine, which is a bit of a, a right-wing magazine, which I don't normally read it, I'm more of a New Statesman kind of guy, but the, the Spectator, which is a right-wing magazine, a great article which I tweeted, if you follow me on Twitter, you often get little things to read. It says, we have allowed marriage, talking about the government, has allowed marriage to be so hollowed out that it's already little more than a few legal rights. We've already allowed marriage to be hollowed out, that it's already little more than a few legal rights. And the whole debate this week, it was actually about rights, wasn't it? It was about who should have the right to marry. Who should marriage be available to? And the reason why this is a big debate is because actually if marriage is just about rights, so being married in our society conveys a certain amount of rights. So actually I was reading uh, just yesterday that people who live together but are not married, are now saying, what about our rights? We've got rights. We, we're, we, we're like a married couple, we've got rights. What about when my partner dies and we're not married? Uh, what about our rights? So the whole debate has become matters of rights, because the, traditionally the government has uh, given uh, rights to married couples, married couples allowance, so that's eroded, and kind of children, family allowances and certain around, rights around property. And so the whole thing about marriage, it's become a bit of a piece of paper. It literally, you get a piece of paper. So when Andy and Vic were going on their honeymoon, uh, I know that Roger Whittacombe gave me the piece of paper and said, make sure, she, he said, don't give it to Andy, which is, I don't know why, I don't know why he didn't suggest it. He said, Vic will want this, and, and said, give it to Vic when she's about to go. So I gave it to Vic's mum, and we passed it on, this piece of paper that said, we're married. But uh, actually, our society says, oh, no, it's not a piece of paper. I don't want a piece of paper. I don't need a piece of paper. I don't want a piece of paper. What, what I want is, I want love. I don't need a piece of paper, says the, the, the line, to prove that I love you. 
And so, that, that we've got this kind of interesting uh, de- uh, split going on. We've got a push to give the re- legal rights of marriage to more and more and more people. But we've also got this kind of downplaying of marriage. And I talked about that a bit last week. Downplaying of marriage where I said, well, actually, we don't really need marriage. We don't really need the, the legal state of marriage. It's just about love. And I think that, that society has drifted... Uh, sometimes positively, often negatively, about marriage. So that if you were... Uh, Flick's getting married, what, a month? A little bit more. Okay, so I've still time to prepare my talk. Um, but, you know, that what, what would have happened to Flick a uh, hundred years ago, maybe two hundred years ago, would be that actually her mum and dad would have found her somebody. Her mum and dad would have found her a family... Uh, and hopefully it would have been upwardly mobile. So obviously for me, uh, for my sisters, it would have been really easy to find a right family. For some of you people, obviously harder because to be upwardly mobile when you're as high up the social ladder as you are, it's more difficult. But you know, you'd find a, you'd find someone who would do the family name good. And I don't know, I, I mean, I quite like Pride and Prejudice, the Kieran Knightley version. I, I don't know why the Kieran Knightley version is interesting to me, but I have found Pride and Prejudice a kind of an interesting uh, uh, film because actually, why I like the film because it's the tension between the, the 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 duty that the woman will get married to the right family and they'll get married oldest first down the line, which has been probably for ten centuries or longer. To the, actually the the fight that well, Elizabeth Barrett is it Bennett Elizabeth Bennett has to that's a Kieran Knightley character has to find love and the, the the whole the book starts with this you might even be able, uh, know it if you if you like the book it says it is a truth universally acknowledged that who knows it that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And that was the whole thing. Wives, sorry girls, wives were just a, almost a commodity that you as a daughter would be given to the right man that would help the family survive, that would help the family improve their social status. And women as commodity, I don't agree with arranged marriages because women are not a commodity. Uh, and, you know, the, I love the story because it's the fight for romantic love, isn't it? She's not interested in him, even though he's got this massive big house. She thinks he's a big head snobby, whatever, and she wants to marry for love. But what she finds is, obviously, she gets love and the big house, which is why everybody likes it. Okay. <laughs> Nothing to do with our materialistic culture at all. Okay, so it's interesting that, that this idea of romantic love that I talked about last time, that we need this life-transforming romantic experience, is right in the middle of that film. And actually, it's, it's the move where we've gone. Nobody, and I'm not saying that, nobody would expect you to marry somebody that you're not in love with. Nobody would expect you to marry someone you don't like, somebody that you feel incompatible with. So we've got these kind of strands going around in society. I'd say the first one would be, and I talked about this last week, if you've never experienced romantic love, you've never really had a full life. You know, the, you, you don't need to, to, to that, that you need to have had that moment of the intense electric passion where when she walks in the room, you feel like you're going to die. Exciting moment. We think, I've got to have had that in my life. And we want, and we invest all loads of emotional energy into that. 
But the second thing we also sadly believe is that that romantic uh, love, that, that kind of energy, that electricity doesn't last. So we've got this, we want romantic love. I'm not pointing anywhere. We want romantic love, but, but it doesn't last. And we, so they, we also, therefore, to believe that, roma- that marriage should be the basis of romantic love, as I've said. So we've got this thing. Romantic love is this life-fulfilling thing. It never lasts. But, rom- but marriage should be based on romantic love. So if you put those together, what do you get? Turn to your partner and say what you get. Put, we're both together. Romantic love, we all want it. Romantic love doesn't last. Marriage should be based on romantic love. Okay, what, what's, the, what's the, the conclusion? If you, We probably agree with all those statements. Those of us who are married end up in passionless marriages. The, no, that's not exactly. <laughs> the truth is that we draw the conclusion that lasting marriage and romantic love are incompatible. That's we draw the conclusion that lasting marriage and romantic love are incompatible. And therefore, expecting people to commit to lifelong marriage is saying that you will condemn them to live a life of an unfulfilled, passionless marriage. Okay, and so that's what we've got. So therefore, biblical understanding of love uh, seems very different from that. It doesn't preclude deep emotion and romantic love, and it's not about marriage without passion or emotion, but actually it's essentially about a deeper kind of love that's more active, something you do rather than something you feel, and less subjective, more about, less about your opinion and what's really the reality. So Tim Keller, in his book that I quoted before, which I cannot find the meaning of marriage, he says this, I'll quote him a lot, it's just a great book, you must read it. When the Bible speaks of love... It measures it primarily not by how much you receive, you know where I'm going with this or where he's going with this, but how much you're willing to give yourself to someone. Not by how much you receive, but how much you're willing to give yourself to someone. How much you're willing to lose for the sake of the other. How much of your freedom you are willing to forsake. How much of your precious time, emotion and resources you're willing to invest in the other. Now, the thing is, that is not really, doesn't sound like romantic love, does it? Because what we do is, we want to give, we give love when we feel the buzz. We give love when we feel the love, when we feel the energy. That's when we give love. When we feel that the love is there, then we find it easy to give love. But when we feel that the love isn't there, we feel it's really inauthentic to give love. Because it sounds like duty, it sounds like demand, it sounds like empty routine. And so we've got this problem that our, our feeling about love is overtly too subjective. It's far too emotional. Don't mishear me, I'm not saying love's not about emotion. So the truth is, that married couples, if they only make love, if you're not married you can listen to this, might be helpful advice if you get married. <coughs> married couples, if they only make love when they feel like it, you've got a a bloke who feels like it probably more often, but you know, may not feel like it all the time, and you've got a woman who feels like it probably less often, she may not feel it all the time, and it's almost like spinning two dials, and you've got to get both dials to go ding before you make love, yeah? And what I'm saying, I don't feel like it today, I don't feel like it today, that's because we feel that, uh, that making uh, love is something that's inauthentic 
if you don't feel emotion. And some of you are probably thinking, well, of course, you're supposed to feel the emotion. But actually, some of the time, you have to make love. You get the video ready, Zach. You have to make love. This, everyone's going. People are going. You have to make love just because it's Wednesday. This is a great track. We won't show it all, but it just gives you the idea. Just because, you know, I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to go back to school teaching. <laughs> but, you know, so we believe that sex should be the result of great passion. And why that's funny is, you know, I love the line where it says, and you've got to take out the recycling. Uh, that's not part of it, but it's quite important. <laughs> and, and you think, oh, right, this is marriage, isn't it? But what, what we want, I watched a film last night with our boys called This Means War. And it's like, there's always that sense of, the sex scene, it's only a 12, don't worry, don't get wrong. Where there's a sex scene where there's this like, a moment of incredible passion. And it's like, oh, and they wake up in the morning and say, this is just a friend, that was the best sex ever. And it's like, sex has got to be like skydiving. Like the sort of emotional surge. Of, I was going to get on there and jump off here. If you like skydiving, it can work for you. But... <laughs> But, you know, it's like this skydiving, it's like, whoa, out he comes, whoa, amazing, amazing. You know, but actually, sex in marriage is a bit more like sculpture. You know, so you want skydiving, you want the adrenaline rush of this great sex, but sex in marriage is more like sculpture. You know, there's a hammer and a chisel and quite a lot of stuff's got to be chipped away and it takes years before the fully formed version of great sex appears. And, and that's what it is. And we feel, well, you know, that's far too 
hard work, you know, it doesn't really feel like artistry. But sex, it takes time. It takes time to work at it. And, and then if you want to go skydiving, then, you know, you go skydiving and skydiving with different girls every time, but ultimately, or different guys every time, but ultimately, it, sex is for marriage and it's like a great work of art. It takes a long time to get right. The interesting thing, if, mar- if, if sex outside marriage is skydiving, the trouble is far too many people are in the adrenaline rush of it, jumping out without a parachute, aren't they? They're jumping out without the parachute of commitment and faithfulness and they're hitting the ground hard. Tim Keller says this, Outside of marriage, sex is accompanied by a desire to impress or entice someone. It's like the thrill of the hunt. When you are seeking to draw someone in that you don't know, it injects risk and uncertainty and conquest that quickens the heartbeat and stirs the emotion. If great sex is defined that way, then the commitment of marriage will indeed stifle that particular kind of thrill. And actually, you, you know, you're allowed to admit that that sounds thrilling. It's not like that doesn't sound thrilling. It does sound thrilling. It's part of, you know, the whole thrill of the chase, uncertainty, conquest, actually. But the problem with such things of impressing and enticing, it's what Keller calls consumer relationships. Consumer relationships. You know what a, 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 a consumer relationship works is you have a vendor, someone who's selling, someone who offers to meet your needs, at a price that's acceptable. I know that sometimes sex is actually in that, in the kind of narrowest sense, an economic transaction. But, but we tend to live in a world of these economic transactions. We tend to, to, to have our relationships and we consider, well, what is it costing me and what am I getting out of it? What's it costing me and what I'm getting out of it? So, so what we don't want is we don't want a relationship where we're on the negative side. Where this is costing me more than I'm getting out of it. And that's the, the language of the marketplace. It's the language of the consumer. So, typically the unspoken transaction works like this. A, a man or a woman offers a mix of time, attention, kind words, gifts, and sexual intimacy. There's a book called The Five Languages of Love that talks about how you can give love and in exchange for the excitement of sex with a woman or a man who he or she finds attractive. And that's the kind of deal. Now, obviously, the more beautiful or rich the partner is, the higher the price you're expected to pay. And the sad reality is, guys or girls that feel ugly or feel worthless are likely to give away their sex much more cheaply than somebody who feels, I'm really special, I'm very beautiful, or I'm very wealthy. But it's still the language of the marketplace. It's still the language of a transaction. And then in a free market, you know what? What happens in a free market? When there's another vendor who offers something more at a price that's the same or more acceptable, then there's no commitment on behalf of the consumer to stay with the original vendor. That is how it goes. If someone opens a coffee shop across the road from Paul Avery's coffee shop that was in Broadway, there's no commitment necessarily on Paul's consumers to stay with Paul's and Paul's coffee shop. They can just go across the road if the cakes are better and cheaper, isn't it? And that, we understand that, don't we? And so therefore, we, uh, 
consumer relationships are increasingly more and more dominating our, our thinking about relationships. It's more and more thinking about what I put in, what I get out. It's much more about consumer relationships. And the thing about consumer relationships, the relationship to the, between the parties is much more easy to break and it's much more about having my needs met. It's much more about me and my hopes and dreams, my expectations. So when we're faced with a choice between feelings and duty, what do you like to choose? Be honest. Feelings. If you're chased with choice between passion and promise, which do you prefer? Okay, fine, it's... Passion is the correct is the answer. It's not the correct answer, but it's the one emotionally we want to do. Because invariably, uh, uh, consumer relationships means we choose feelings and passions over words like commitment and faithfulness and sacrifice. Because these words belong to another kind of love, another kind of relationship that actually takes where the, pres- the relationship takes precedence over the individual. Now that relationship used to be marriage. But actually, it's not anymore in our society. What relationship is there, if there's any relationship that still exists, that's kind of like that, where, where commitment and faithfulness and sacrifice are more important and the person's willing to give it, even though the relationship doesn't necessarily pay them back? Thank you, parenting. Parenting is the one relationship that still works beyond the consumer relationship. It still works on, I will love you and sacrifice for you and give for you all through all of your life, no matter how horrible you are. Hypothetically. <laughs> yeah, that was mean. Joseph, I love you. And I love you whatever you do, whether you're good or bad. And there remains a major social stigma between a, for abandoning your kids. If you abandon your kids, that is a major social stigma. Why have you done that? And I, under, I know that people who have their kids taken away by social services, it's just heart-wrenching. They fight for it, rightly, because they understand it's a covenantal relationship that no matter what it costs, no matter how far they have to go, no matter how much they have to sacrifice, no matter how committed they have to be, they don't, won't, won't let go. But that stigma no longer applies to ditching your marriage partner. If you decide not to stay, people don't mind. It's okay not to stay. It's okay to say you walk out first emotionally, and then physically, and finally legally. And um, I don't think there's anybody in this room who's not known or been touched by that. To be a parent, though, is different, isn't it, than that? To be a parent is not about walking out. It's about saying we're together. We're one flesh. You're part of me. They are physically, genetically they are. You love them like your own body. Paul says, love your wife like your own body. You love your kids like your own body. Sacrificially, at the cost of your own body, you hear these stories. I read one some time ago of a, of a young mum whose kitty wandered into the road. I think it was in the States, but a kitty wandered into the road and she ran out to move the kid out of the way of oncoming traffic and she was hit by a truck. And we don't find that... We find it amazing, but we don't find... We think, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. 
I could dive in to try and save my kids if they'd fallen in and were drowning. I just couldn't watch them go. You know my dog? No, it'd go. I hope so. You know, people do die saving their dogs. It's not a covenantal relationship with your dog. It is with your kids. And you know, you are, they're they're yours legally. You're their guardian. You're their protector. You know, you sign. There's a sense where legally they're yours. And however frustrating or disobedient they may be, you still love them freely. And it's a covenantal relationship. And that we need to understand that that doesn't mean there's no passion, doesn't mean there's no love, but it means it's a different kind of love. You're not in the relationship with your kids just for the buzz of when they do well at sports day. Or win the swimming. Yay. You're not in it for that. That's great, it's a byproduct, but you're in it no matter what. And that's what a covenant love is. Covenant is a solemn and binding agreement or promise between two parties. The term today is usually often used about property. You know, there's a covenant on this property. Or, or you, you know, you make an agreement and it says a covenant. You make agreements, they sell, you buy. You make this agreement. But actually, it's original meaning. It means to unite or join together. Remember in that first week, if you were here, I joined two bits of paper by glue. And it's, that's the sense of joining. It's about joining together. It's often about joining together two individuals or families or nations that would never join otherwise. It's not about joining together uh, two brothers who are already joined. I'm already joined with my brother. It's about joining me with someone, if I made a covenant, it's about joining me with someone from a different family. And actually, controversially, a different gender. It's about joining something different and bringing it together. In the Bible, oneness is always brings together two things that are different. So, and actually, it's talked about our commitment, uh, God's commitment to us, God's faithful commitment to us. His rebellious people is also called a covenant. And marriage is a covenant. Uh, in Malachi, it says, uh, talks about a man is told of his spouse, your partner is the wife of your marriage covenant. And when you say we make these vows in the presence of God, it's because there's a covenant. There's a sense of this is something more than just convenience. This is something more than just you know, consumer relationships. So Paul in our passage says, for this reason man will leave his father and mother and be united or covenanted, joined, to his wife, and they become one flesh. If Christian marriage is merely seen as a legal piece of paper, then other sexual relationships based on passionate feelings will always make marriage seem dry and dutiful. In fact, philosopher Bertrand Russell articulated the modern view. He argued sex should not be disassociated from serious emotions and feelings of affection. And he believed it can only flourish as long as it's free and spontaneous. And he said it tends to be killed by thoughts of obligation and duty. This makes promise the enemy of spontaneity and the enemy of love. When we're in love, though, the thing is we can't help making promises. You've made, probably, if you've dated people, you didn't marry them, you've made silly promises. I'll always love you. There's something about... Love that makes you want to make promises, but yet we're scared of promises. But actually, Christian love is, uh, Christian marriage is, unites both the loving faithfulness and commitment of a promise and the unconditional love that comes from passion. It's the foundation for true intimacy. The promise of wedding vows, far from stifling love, are a way of enhancing love. Because true love does not flourish without the foundation 
of self-giving. Imagine you're in a relationship that's, you might be married, but it's a consumer relationship. You're in a consumer relationship. Now what you have to do is you always have to be showing that the price that your partner's paying is worth what they're getting. So therefore you better not look ugly. You better not wear the uh, team building t-shirt that you had from whenever it was, that team building exercise all those years ago. You, 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 you know, you want to look good. Guys, girls, you want to be exciting, you want to be enticing, you want to be always living in this promoting and marketing yourself. Because you're not quite sure when the guy or the girl is going to say, actually, this relationship doesn't pay, so I'm not going to stay. So you're constantly marketing, you're constantly impressing, constantly enticing, constantly showing the chemistry's there, that the relationship's thrilling and fulfilling because you risk it being over. In a consumer relationship, you're constantly promoting and marketing yourself. And what you have to do then is you've got to keep the facade up. You've got to keep the facade up. We all wear little facades, we all wear little masks. You've got to keep the facade up. You've got to keep the facade that you really are the most exciting, interesting, fantastic, emotional, passionate man, lover, whatever. Because if you say, no, I'm just the boring... Well, I won't describe myself. Yeah, well, why not? I'm just the boring man on the computer writing sermons, getting frustrated. You know, that, you know how does she stay with me? Yeah? How, how, does, how does Justina stay with Tony? How, do, how did that happen? How does it happen? Because, you know, the passionate love will last, but actually, it's not that passion dies, but actually, passion means that you're always looking for somebody who's going to give you what you need, and that ultimately cannot be the place to be really true. A a marriage covenant that's founded on your partner's promise and commitment to self-giving faithfulness suddenly creates space to take off your mask to reveal and risk vulnerability, to reveal your true self. Suddenly sex, instead of being about risk and the excitement of risk, is about security. In place of performance, it's about acceptance. In place of hiding behind facades, it's about laying down your defences. In place of Botox and silicon, it's about being truly naked physically and emotionally. You can't do that if you're in a covenant, if you're not in a covenant relationship. It's just too risky. It's just too vulnerable. Covenant love that promises faithfulness, it limits your option of short-term ego rush and the thrill of forbidden new relationships, but it creates a safe place of trusting and knowing and healing and transformation. In the consumer love, you just don't know if your partner's really in love with you. Are they in love with the idea of being in love? Are they, isn't it exciting to be in love? And then, I mean, I, I can remember, I show my naivety, my, my shallowness. I can remember at times feeling, man, I'm massively in love. And then thinking, you know, she's got a funny shaped nose. It's over. Yeah? Let's consume a love. And I thought, how shallow, how shallow of me. You don't know if you've really ever been loved. Will you be loved if you reveal those things about you that you're ashamed of, those flaws that you hide behind your facade? Can you be confident that, that if they find out some challenging issue in your life, that they'll still love you? You can't, because actually if the price becomes too high, then the sale's off. I was talking to, to Mark, actually, Clements, 
And he showed me this diagram. And I said, thank you, man. That's very helpful. I'll use it in my sermon. This is called the Johari or Johari diagram. Okay, it looks very complicated. Let me explain. Okay, it's down this bit here are things you know about yourself and things you don't know about yourself. Going that way. This way, things that other people know about you and things that other people don't know about you. You got that? See how that works? So this top box number one, you know that about yourself and you all know that about me. Yeah? Or whoever. So we could make a list of that and fill that box. Good things, bad things. Okay? Now there's things that are behind... Sometimes this box is called facade. There's things that are behind my facade that some of you don't know. You're now thinking, I wonder what they are. <laughs> and there's things behind your facade that I can see, but you don't know about. Some of you, when you know when you're in a three and somebody says to you, you know, I just observe you're a bit like that. You say, how dare you? Sometimes you're in a three and you risk self-disclosure. You tell. You say, you know, I'm struggling with this area. Or this is me. And you hope in your three that they love you enough to not judge you. And sometimes in your three or in a relationship, you say, you know, I just observe you're like that. And you feel, ooh, I didn't know that. That's awful. And then there's this third area, the unknown area that's only known to God. Do you follow that diagram? You probably go away and say, this man is all a load of psychobabble. He never preached from the Bible. Oh, well, there you go. Come back next week and I'll try to be more biblical. But I just found it helpful. I found it a helpful tool because actually in marriage, safety safe place is the only place you're going to risk self-exposure, self-disclosure, both emotionally, physically, naked. That's the only place in a safe marriage or a really, really great friendship. And a, and, and, and a marriage is, is one of the few safe places where they can say, do you know what you're like? No, you know what you're like? <laughs> That's not the way to do it. Keller puts it like this. Good old Keller, eh? What a ledge. The rush of head over the heels in love is nothing like the profound satisfaction of being known and being loved. When over years, someone has seen you at your worst and knows your strengths and flaws, yet continues to fully commit themselves to you, that is a consummate experience. What it means, it's an orgasmic experience, is what it's saying. It's a consummate experience. To be loved, but not known. It's comforting, maybe even exciting, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. To be loved but not known is comforting and superficial. How how incredible to be fully known and truly loved. And then he writes this, a lot like being loved by God, which is the love we need more than anything. So really the the thing I want to say is actually when God created sex and marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. When you mess with marriage, you don't only mess up with what type of marriage you get. Have you got a giving marriage or a consumer marriage? You end up messing with the gospel. You end up messing with God. Because actually, marriage is meant to be a picture of what God is like. Sometimes we can present Jesus as the self, present the self-giving work of Jesus on the cross in merely consumer transactional terms. Yeah? And the Bible does talk about Jesus gave his blood to set us free. It sounds like a transaction, even the word ransom is used. But actually, that is not 
not ultimately what it is. It's easy to go too far and say to people, in, reser- in return for the price that Jesus paid, you need to smarten up your act, refrain from obvious sins, Jesus, give Jesus an hour of your time and a few pounds in the offering. So churches can be full of, of mask-on people marketing and self-promoting themselves, busily brushing up their self-righteousness, as if that would make the price that Jesus paid on the cross a little more worth it, uh, and make Jesus love them more. The, this way promotes Christianity as just another commodity. We market and promote it to others, and we say, if you trust Jesus, he's going to give you an amazing life that's full of fulfillment. So what happens is, that following Jesus becomes a consumer relationship. I only follow Jesus when he does me good. I don't follow Jesus, and I won't follow Jesus if he does me bad, if he doesn't answer my prayers, if my family members are sick, if I lose my job. I won't, I won't follow Jesus when, when I don't have the emotional adrenaline rush. But that's the language of the consumer. It's not the, mar- the language of marriage. It's not the language of Christian love. God's love for us is not consumer, but covenant. Paul describes a relationship and calls it a profound mystery, talking about Christ and the church. And I thought this diagram was helpful because in one sense that Jesus reveals the truth about God that we've only glimpsed something of, amazing, something of his amazing love that was hidden from us, that's been revealed in Jesus' life, death and resurrection. Jesus reveals something about God. He comes to tell, he comes to reveal. The whole Bible is a revelation of God, this, this part of God that we could not know. We can know a bit from creation, but we couldn't know it. Jesus has come and revealed it. He's revealed that he's an amazing God of love. And sometimes that we're so blind that we can't see what we like, and Jesus has come as our true and better husband to reveal to us that we're full of selfishness and sin. Broken and flawed and damaged. If you want to understand covenant love and what marriage should be like, then look at Jesus. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. He didn't look at humanity and say, we're just there, humanity is just so wonderful, I cannot help but give myself for them. In fact, he was in agony. He looked down on us, spitting at him, Denying him, betraying him, abandoning him. They mocked him and said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He could have saved himself. He could have thought the cost of his love was too great for a bride as unworthy and soiled as me and you. He could have come down from the cross, but he stayed. He stayed with all the guilt and shame of our sin poured upon him. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, he died for us. He stayed because covenant love gives. God so loved the world that he gave. He stayed because true love sacrifices. And he gave his very life for us. He stayed hanging there because true love is faithful to his promises. Now actually, if we think about how can I possibly become a a man or a woman that changes my relationships from consumer to covenant, then Jesus needs to be both our model 
and our empowerer. So I can't try, I'll try and be like Jesus and love Naomi better. But what Jesus does, he comes and pours out himself into us. He literally self-gives himself to us. He pours out his very life into us so we can live committed, faithful, sacrificial. So that we can rediscover the, the covenant love that stays. The covenant love that endures. There's a fact, actually, that most marriages that work through a difficult time actually get better. That they get transformed and they find love again. But our temptation is to bail. Our temptation is to go. I'm done. I'm through. This doesn't meet my needs. I'm not staying. But Jesus stayed. He stayed on the cross. He's there for us in heaven. Faithful, stayed, committed, sacrificial. And that's the kind of love that we're to walk into. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.